Hi, my name is Jason Barcham. I'm an associate partner with Servian New Zealand. Welcome to the Technology Whisperers, a technology and innovation podcast brought to you by Servian with your hosts Alistair Ross and Sean Muller. Join us as we demystify the latest emerging innovative technologies for businesses of all shapes and sizes, sharing our thoughts on how you can improve your current technologies, practices and processes to transform your business. Welcome to the Technology Whisperers with me, Alistair Ross, and Sean Muller. Hi, Sean. How are you doing? I'm good, Alistair. How are you this morning? I'm grand. I'm grand. I'm really good. We have got an action-packed show for us today, don't we? We've got we've got quite a lot to cover in a short space of time. And it's something that's near and dear to both your and my heart, actually. Yeah. Being being old farts that we are, really, I think that's that's the case. Today's topic is all about tech debt, technology debt. And it, I think there's a lot of preconceptions about what technology debt is. And I think there's also this connotation that technology debt is always, always a bad thing. It's not always, is it? No, 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 it's not. I, I, I... And maybe we should spend a little bit of time talking through exactly what it is, because I, I, I've had a discussion with uh, some business people. They're like, "Oh, well, if I owe money on my on my technology, that that's tech debt, right?" And I, I think there's a lot of confusion around it. So maybe it's not necessarily a bad thing. You wanna you wanna walk us through kind of a general description of what tech debt is, technology debt that we're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Well, so technology is something that in our organizations we've had for probably since the fifties, right? So we've got, we've got all sorts of different types of technology and it doesn't really stop at, you know, servers and storage and application software. It can be different types of processes and so forth. So we can't just limit ourselves by saying it's, it's all this IT governs, but I guess for within today's realm of the podcast let's let's keep it in that area but for for technology for technology's sake the the debt is really having a solution that is taking you down and a way of it's kind of forcing you to pull you in one particular way around technology so if you've invested say 20 years ago in product x which is now either out of date and you have to update that software to its newest version to, in order to keep up to date, to keep, the sec- keep secure, to keep right in, in whatever case that may be for your organization. Maybe your requirements have changed, whatever it is. But there's, there's two paths you can go. You can upgrade to the latest version of that software or the latest version of that hardware or whatever it may be. Or you can choose to migrate and go off to something else. But in either case, the thing that's holding you back there, that that feeling of debt, I guess, is more about what we're talking about, right? Because it, yeah, that that's that's the sort of that's the sort of gist, I think. Yeah, and, right? I, and I think yeah, no, and I think I think you're right to call out the fact that it's not it's not IT technology debt. It, tech debt can exist in everything, and and I think for businesses. To, to get their head wrapped around this. If you're a business and you own a fleet of cars, at some point you have paid down that fleet of cars and the maintenance and upkeep of that fleet of cars becomes more expensive than replacing the fleet of cars, right? At, at some point, uh, you know, because they're older vehicles, they're constantly in maintenance. They may be at risk a greater risk for accidents. Insurance has gone up because the vehicles are older. There are additional costs and and you're having to maintain your own support staff because the dealerships that you bought them from no longer can service them. And so you're having to hire more and more people to be able to maintain them. At some point, the business says, we need to upgrade our car fleet. Technology works the exact same way, exactly the way you described it, Alistair, there, there comes a point where you have to decide, what do I need to do with the technology? Whether it's typewriters in the 1950s, mainframes in the 1980s, 
or a move to cloud in the 2000, 2020s, the decision has to be made. And oftentimes I feel like that previous decisions lock people into a place where they can't, they can't incrementally do something. They can't do something for a small amount of money. It becomes, you know, bigger than Ben-Hur. We, mm-hmm. So we, we've got, a, we've got some old servers that are no longer supported and, and it's costing us a ton of money and we need to do something with those servers. So we decide that we want to move to the cloud but none of our software is supported on the cloud. So that means we got to upgrade all of our software. Then we got to rewrite all of our applications. And suddenly the business covers their ears and goes, no, 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 I don't want to, I don't want to talk. It's too much. And that's how they get, yeah, it's too hard. It's, we, we, we don't know where to start. We can't. And, and I think, so I think when we talk about bad technical debt, bad technical debt is, I don't want to make a decision about this. This is too complicated. It's too difficult. I don't want to think about it. You know what? I'm just going to sweat the assets until um, I'm forced to have to uh, upgrade them. That's bad technical debt. Mm. But you alluded to the fact that there is a there, there's this idea of a good technical debt. Now, good technical debt. Obviously, you want to minimize technical debt as much as possible, but if you consciously choose, if there are technical reasons, if there are business process reasons, heck, if there's even business financial reasons to maintain technical debt, so you've made an active choice that we're going to keep this older server running this old piece of software because we have identified that we're going to be completely off using that software within the next six months. It doesn't make any sense to upgrade it. So we're going to um, live with that for the next six months knowing that we're going to turn it off after six months and we commit to it as part of our business process. So you can choose technical debt, but it has to be a choice and you have to have reasons for it. It can't just be, this is just too hard. I don't want to mess with it. Absolutely. And I think it's really important to have a decision uh, point about when to decide about when it's good to accept that technical debt. And there should be a gate, a gate. And, and, and throughout the business, I think it's always seen as this dirty word, right? Technical debt. Oh, we can't yeah. have this technical debt. We can't have a conversation about accepting the technical debt. It's almost seemed to like being brushed under the rugs. I've seen so many organizations over the years where that is exactly what's happened. It's like, oh, there's a risk yeah. register or something like that. We'll just put it on the risk register. And that's, that means that we've done yeah. our job. We've swept it under the rug and that's it gone. That's a really, really bad idea really bad idea because that way something eventually is going to break and you won't be prepared for it um your risk register you know has a line item that says well how do we mitigate well we mitigate by doing this but have you put your strategy in place to actually do that no you just swept under the rug really bad idea right yeah so and and that's that's when if you if you can't make a decision and you just park it someplace and don't make that decision, that's when the technical debt becomes bad technical debt. It's yeah, you said exactly the way you said that, Alistair, you you create a stage gate for yourself and then you ignore the stage gate and you just keep maintaining it on and on. And, and there's, there's real impact to this. I mean, Alistair and I both have alluded to, you know, additional costs and things like that, but there is real impact to technical debt and maybe, you know, so, the easiest one to talk about is financial, right? So this is one of those areas where within technology, if if we were talking about a fleet of cars again, the business gets it. Total cost of ownership of a fleet of cars is the, the cost to buy the car, the cost for the maintenance, the cost for the fuel to run the cars, the reduction of value of the cars over time. And, and the CFOs will factor, they will figure out for that fleet of cars what the total cost of ownership of the car was. If you then take a server with a software package on it into that CFO, he oftentimes they only think about, well, what was the project cost to stand it up? And nothing else is thought about. And that total cost of ownership is completely lost. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes that total cost of ownership, a true assessment of the total cost of ownership can be the spur you need to deal with technical debt because they're you have the ongoing maintenance and support cost. Eventually you have to accept the fact that you're going to replace it. And there's a replacement cost for all of the functions, whether you replace them with a service or you replace them with your own hardware. And, and the reality is, is that 
I, and Alistair, you, you tell me, there are a lot of vendors out there that will say end of life. And then they will sign very expensive support contracts to be able to support oh, yeah. beyond that yeah, end of life. And so, yeah, literally the hardware vendors and the software vendors, yeah, they're going to tell you it's end of life and that they're not going to be bug fixes and they won't support you. And then when you get yourself against that wall where you can't get off the platform, they'll come back and say, yeah, for 10, 20 times the support cost, they will continue supporting you. Now, they're not going to give you any bug fixes, but they'll support you if something goes wrong. Yeah, it's kind of like this just big black box you keep putting money into. And, and I think if anybody has experience of calling up these supports for products which are, are clearly outside of support, the service that they get isn't exactly the, the premium service either, which is, yeah, it, 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 you're not really getting value for money in any way whatsoever. So it is not a situation you want to find yourself in. Well, yeah, it's like your super high risk insurance is basically what you're doing. You're yeah. you you have gone down the the worst path, and and in worst case scenarios, and I want to be clear about this. This is not a suggestion of how to deal with this, but in very worst case scenarios, I've been at companies where they have chosen to go to eBay or Trade Me and buy up all of the equivalent pieces of product and just hold them because they cannot get off the platform they're on. And rather than risk their platform falling over and them not being able to get a spare, they literally buy used spares off of eBay and trade me to try and maintain it. And it's so there's an operational risk, but there's also a massive security risk. And in this day and age with the ransomware and the other hacker attacks that have been happening, these become points of focus for these security vulnerabilities. They, they absolutely do. And, and remember that the security vulnerabilities, I think it's very easy to overlook the fact that both software and even hardware, in some cases, if we're talking about the recent issues with Intel hardware and Intel CPUs and so forth, but, but predominantly software here, it's very easy to overlook the fact that threats can come from within your network as much as outside of your network. And that's a real issue, right? So most of the malware that comes into your network these days, yeah, okay, right, it comes from, you know, some Russian hackers or something like that. But the reality is that it comes from within because there's somebody clicking on a link on, on your email or something like that, right? Or the social engineering or all sorts of different types of ways to exploit your infrastructure. Just bear in mind that because you've got maybe some aged software or something like that sitting behind a firewall, sitting behind a locked away network, that's fine. But the reality is that it can still be attacked on the inside, even if it's not connected to a, a, you know, a, an, an internet network. That's That's not... That is an absolute fallacy. So make sure that that's not something that you're saying, oh yeah, we're okay because we're on a you know private network or something like that. It's not gonna help you. Yeah, that's an that's actually an inter a really interesting point. I know that uh, look look, my background is networking and network and security. And years ago we used to say if we created a perimeter that was secure enough that we didn't have to worry about the security inside. I think from a security aspect, that's gone. No matter how secure your perimeter is, if there's a vulnerability, and the vulnerability can be in a process. So if you have an old piece of technology that can't integrate with, say, your identity access management platform, and so you have put it in place in such a way that when you log into it, it doesn't automatically log you out, or maybe even it doesn't support automatically logging you out. And you put a business process in that says, okay, we know that we have this old piece of technology, but anybody that logs into it as admin or root level logs out when they get done logging out. If one person doesn't follow that rule and stays logged in and then connects to something that they shouldn't connect, that piece of technology is now owned. And because it has so it because as a an older piece of technology, it's not going to have modern security controls around it. And oftentimes those things tend to be plumbed into backend core processes. That's why you haven't been able to upgrade them is they're integrated tightly coupled with core processes and then they can't go anywhere. So, so the hackers get into that core piece of older technology 
And then they use that to basically exploit everything else in your environment. It, it doesn't matter if you have the newest, fanciest microservices built, you know, serverless infrastructure in AWS. If you have the whole thing plugged into a, and I'm not knocking Solaris, but uh, it plugged into a Spark 5 running on-premise, running Solaris 6 or Solaris 7, God help you, and somebody gets root-level access and the service accounts on that have root-level access into your cloud environment, you've lost everything. You're, you're, you're done at that point. You might as well uh, announce the breach notification to the rest of the world and start you know, looking at paying for people's credit rating checks because it, you've been breached at that point. It's, it's not a good situation to be in. So look, there's there's just so many different ways at which um, it's not just about security. It's not just about the financial risks. There's people, there's, there's business processes. There's all sorts of different risks that really go hand in hand with all of this legacy stuff. So really we what we should tell the listener about is our experience, I guess, with making recommendations to mitigate the the risks as far as possible and and being okay with technical debt and how we can actually get to that point where we can say right if you if you say this is technical debt and agree this is technical debt how do you make a safe bastion for that technical debt and and i want to go back to something you said earlier and i think it's very important because on the technology side the technologists the it people tend to be very negative if somebody says yeah this is technical debt they become very precious and they they argue against it and the technical debt or legacy or we need to culturally we need to accept those terms for what they are and acknowledge them because we can't move forward we can't make good smart recommendations we can't be heard if every time somebody says yeah okay we're going to create a project that's going to deal with this technical debt oh you're you're calling all our stuff bad. It, it it creates an environment where you can't move forward. So I think I think that's very important. This is again, these recommendations are starting with the conversation. It's not a bad thing to have technical debt to recognize that you have it and to deal with it. It's a bad thing to pretend like you don't have it and not be willing to talk about technical yeah. debt. And I should I should I should also say, you know, we're talking. You're talking here with two people who have been in the industry for quite some time, seen a lot of technology. And if you're if you're watching this video rather than listening to the podcast, uh, you'll see behind me a whole bunch of really, really old computers. <laughs> I'm definitely one of the people who enjoys old technology. And there is a case for if it ain't broke, don't fix it as well. I mean, literally, if the, the platform that you're working on, whether it's software or hardware or whatever, if it is, you know, if you can go and hand on heart, say, yes, this platform is secure, it is fit for purpose, it's not causing me any problems, then why change it? Literally, it's if it looks a bit old and, you know, rough around the edges, that's not necessarily a good reason to change it. I, I worked when I was many, many, many moons ago, I worked for a, a retail organization in the United Kingdom. And that organization used a Unix-based menu-driven platform. And it was, it looked, you know, I think we probably replaced it in the late 1990s, maybe early noughties. And it looked, the, the original platform, the Unix one, looked really antiquated, right? These were green screen terminals and they were all, they, these terminals all were sort of customer facing as in like the customer got to see, you know, the, the operators using these in front of them at the, the point of sale and so forth. And yeah, they looked really bad, I guess, to who, to somebody, but they worked incredibly well. And they did, they, they were so isolated um, from any network, they literally ran over serial terminals. But the, but the point I was trying to make in that is that that platform from all, for all of its financial transactions, for all of its reporting requirements, analysis, day-to-day -day operations, all of that, it satisfied the requirements of the organization for as far as I could tell, 100%. Yep. What, what and, they... that, and it, yeah, it's, and it's okay to have, and, I, and I'm going to use the term legacy again, and legacy is not a negative term. It's okay to have a piece of legacy tech and like it could actually be a piece of legacy tech 
that the manufacturer doesn't exist anymore, that there's no support contract for, that you have to maintain internal you know, parts supplies and, and your own support people. As long as you choose to make that decision to do that. And Alistair's completely right. If the piece of technology works and meets all the requirements of the organization, what we often find is that the or as the organization matures, they gain new requirements. And then they want to turn a blind eye to that piece of legacy technology because they because it cannot fulfill the new requirements. And then they end up creating a multiple parallel systems that actually end up costing the organization more money. So it, it's about being smart when you decide to do something with it's being aware of when your technology becomes technology debt and to begin to decide what you're going to do in a, in a conscientious, you know, I'm going to make this decision and I'm going to do these things at this time and I'm going to plan for them ahead of time. Yeah, as much actually, as that that's that's just reminded me of something I sh I should have said a bit about. So you reminded me there, people when when new requirements come up and new people have been brought into an organization, they might look at the legacy system, and it's easy for them to say, "I've got no idea about how this works," especially if the predecessors on that system, the people that put it in. Uh, it might have been even a third party vendor or whatever, but they might not have done a very good job of documentation or might have um, the documentation might have got lost or, no. or something like that. So, <laughs> yeah, somebody know. didn't somebody didn't document what they implemented. <laughs> you know, I've I very rarely hear of that situation, Sean. <laughs> Two sarcastics in uh, one yes. room. <laughs> tongue firmly in cheek. Yeah, totally. engineers and even architects are not really good at documenting what they've done. And and I, it's gotten better. As the documentation process has gotten, as we've moved forward, documentation processing has become easier and it's gotten better. But yeah, I know a lot of systems that were implemented, by the way, production internet systems that everybody on the planet uses, Facebook going down because of DNS issues, that were just never documented when they were implemented. Yeah. Uh, that's right. So, so it is quite tempting for somebody who's new to a system to come along, look at it, and go, "Oh, that's old crap. I'm going to put something new in place." And that's fair and well, but there is obviously a cost that you know usually a business case has to be written and justify that cost. But it's more than that. It's it's the fact that the system that is in place actually might be suitable for requirements and is secure and is financially. Um, still totally up to date it's fine so you you need to be aware of these things when you have a legacy environment in place it's not it's not acceptable just to say oh write it off because it doesn't look shiny and and i haven't bothered looking for the documentation that's i you know that's it's actually a really good point and at the enterprise level you get a lot of people talking about it service management and there's an entire framework and structure around how you do that and i remember when asset management became part of the ITSM back in 2000, I think it was 10, 10 or 11. But knowing what you have, a, a lot of times, because uh, Alistair, I've been in those situations where somebody new comes on board and they, they, they're digging through some back closet and they find something that's plugged into the middle of the network doing something. And by back closet, I mean some kind of software repository or something. You know what I mean? Anyway, and yes, exactly what you describe happens. And oftentimes they look around and they go, hey, can, can we get rid of this really old piece of equipment here? And no one knows what it is or what it does. Mm -hmm. There's no there's no documentation on it. They don't know it. And oftentimes the response is, no, 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 no. we don't know what that does. You can't touch it. it it's got to stay because we don't know what it does. So it becomes very important for you to have a asset register, asset database, so that you know the technology pieces that you have and that there is a business to technology translation within that. So in other words, this piece of technology delivers for this business. I, I remember there was a, a long, long time ago, there was a piece of kit in one of the companies I was in and we looked at it, we looked at it at the network layer and nobody was accessing it. 
we, we watched it for two months. Nobody touched this piece of kit. So we scheduled a change and we turned it off. Three weeks later, the CFO was standing in my office telling me he had to turn it back on. Once a quarter, they used this piece of kit to run their quarterly reports, financial reports. And that was the only time it got touched for about an hour, once a quarter. And we, it actually ended up costing us 10 times the cost it would have if we had known what it was and why it was there. And we had scheduled the proper change process to get it migrated into something more modern and supportable because we had to do it in a day. Because there, when we went to turn it back on, the drives didn't spin. <laughs> of course it had been not. running it had been running so long that literally the drives when we shut it down the drives came to a halt and they did not spin back up seized up i guess that's what would happen if i if i say to go to sleep for a long time i'd probably seize up that's <laughs> <laughs> what so my, fair enough my my partner pokes me all the time to make sure that i wake <laughs> up every you know five or six hours <laughs> Absolutely. Good idea. Good idea. So, so what about the cost of delay as well? So cost of delay is basically, you know, you've assessed the situation, you know that you've got yourself into technical debt and it's bad debt, but you haven't done anything about it yet. So you're basically delaying that. So that, that becomes what's called the cost of delay. So what, what sort of variables can we have in the cost of delay? Oh, well, so, I mean, the easy ones right off the bat are, and we've already mentioned it, the, those increased software and hardware support costs, especially after we go end of life on a platform. And, you know, there's additional support costs. There's a internal support costs, so additional people to be able to support it. There's potentially hardware that has to be done. But I want to highlight a couple of things that don't get talked about a lot. One of the costs of delay may be the loss of potential new revenue for doing something new within the business. And this is a part of the cost of delay that I think gets ignored a lot. So we say, okay, we've got this big monolithic system and we have this one piece of it that's come end of life that we need to replace. But we find out that to replace that, we have to replace the entire thing because we can't in a monolithic architecture, we can't replace just one piece of it. We either have to upgrade the whole thing, which could be millions of dollars, or we have to re-architect the entire thing and break it apart into pieces that then we can upgrade that one piece, which again, may be millions of dollars. And so you make the choice not to upgrade that one thing. But the one thing, there are new requirements coming down that say you want to open up new markets. I want to do social selling. I want to sell on social media, or we want to go into, you know, a new uh, market. We want to go into China. Or we want to go into India, and there are financial requirements or financial reporting requirements, and we can't meet those because of this one little module that sits inside this monolithic that we can't upgrade. So part of the cost of delay is loss of that enhanced or increased revenue because this is holding you back and not able to give you those requirements. Yep. So that's that's a really important one to 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 point out definitely. Yeah. And 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 oftentimes that cost is greater than all the rest. So I, you do want to look at it and you want to do the comparison, right? There's obviously a cost to upgrade. There's obviously, you know, the impact within the system. So there's a cost impact. So maybe maybe we have to take the entire system out for a week. I've seen upgrades that required you to take the entire system down for a week. So companies that had a business continuity plan of going to paper, if their stuff fell over, had to go to paper so that they could upgrade a system because it took an entire week to upgrade it. There's all, all those costs associated. But you need to balance that with the ongoing maintenance and support costs and the loss of new revenue and opportunities and new requirements that the business has. You need Those costs need to be also calculated in. And oftentimes those becomes the straw that, that breaks the camel's back that says, no, 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 we need to bite the bullet. We just got, we've got to do this over. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. So, so there's a number of different strategies you can have around migration, isn't there? I mean, it's, there's, I think there's seven recognized different 
migration strategies that I would I would see. And and I'll reel those off right now, right? So so those 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 seven options are rehost, replatform, refactor or rearchitect, repurchase, retire, and retain. And do you want me to just just yeah. explain what those all are? Because yeah. I think it's 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 quite easy to sort of hear those and go, oh yeah, that's probably what this means and so forth. But re- these are quite synonymous with, if you look at the migration strategies for AWS and for Azure, they use these terminologies quite a lot as well, but they're actually synonymous with, with all sorts of migration strategies. And that doesn't just mean hardware or software. It can, it, you know, it can mean as a service platforms as well. So take your pick. This really is, this is universal. So rehost is, is often referred to as lift and shift. And that's to move applications without changes or with minimal change. So you could simply say, oh, I'm going to have a move to Linux from Solara. This this is typically large scale legacy migrations where organizations are looking to move quickly to meet business objectives. Now, cost implications in this one can be positive, even without implementing any cloud optimizations, capital costs could be zero and operational costs only would be based on utilization. But bear in mind that you're paying for a machine probably to be up for 24 seven running all the time and that you're not reaping the benefit really there of cloud costs. So if you're migrating to the cloud, you have a, you know, if you have a server right now or a service that's running 24 seven, you need a piece of software that you need all the time or went on demand, basically, you're not, you're not reaping the rewards of cloud if you are moving to the cloud. So you should be looking at um, optimizing that over time. So even if at the beginning you say, look, this is a really hard legacy platform that we have right now. It's really big monolithic. That's a word that you've used quite a lot, Sean. You know, taking that and, and just popping it straight into the cloud. It's, that's the easiest way to get it into the cloud if you are moving it into the cloud. Problems there is cost in the longer term, but it's quite possible to take it into the cloud as almost as is, and then potentially to sort of tinker with it and then put it into something else, which is more consumed as a service. And then you're reaping the, the cost rewards off of cloud services as well. So um, most rehosting can be, can be done as well with automated tools. Some customers prefer to do it manually, manually because that they learn a bit about the process about the legacy systems as they migrate them away. So that's that's worthy of note as well. Then there's the replatform one. And sometimes um, that's referred to as lift, tinker, and shift. So that's basically make a few cloud optimizations if you're migrating to the cloud again to achieve a tangible benefit, but the core architecture of the application itself doesn't change. For example, you could reduce the amount of time spent managing a database instances by managing it to uh, become a database as a service platform, that sort of stuff. That's the um, example I like to use. I, I, that's, in fact, that's a that's a huge, easy win. Moving from a self-managed database on a virtual machine to a database as a service. Yeah, yeah. Li- literally, you can take what a Postgres database or something like that, and you can just do a dump of that database and then import it into, a, I guess, RDS is the example in. In, in Amazon AWS land, right? So you just basically say, this is my database, pop. It, it, there's even a database migration service so that it will synchronize your database in real time. So they can actually have two active active databases and then flip over to your new one. And then at that point you're going, yep, cool. I'm now running this database over here in the cloud or whatever it might be. And super, that, that database is, is managed entirely by the, the cloud provider. So you're not in a situation where you're having to worry about patching it and restarting it and, you know, looking after it in, in many other ways other than just general good database administration. So that's, that's the sort of refactor or re-architect, sorry, sorry, yeah. re-platform. Yeah, sorry. Refactor is the next one. <laughs> uh, refactor is to reimagine how the application is architected and to develop it using cloud native features. So that's, that's talking to what I was saying earlier on when I was talking about rehosting it. So basically saying, right, okay, well, we've got this application. It's a legacy application. How are we going to reimagine it 
for this new landscape. And the new landscape, again, could be cloud, but it, it might just be, it might still be an on-prem hardware. You might be, you know, taking it from on-prem hardware to on-prem hardware, but you're literally changing the software or you're changing the, the principles. Um, maybe the, going back to that, and, and I haven't intentionally called out monolithic, but maybe moving from a monolithic to a decoupled architecture where you, where you don't get locked in, where, where one piece of depend, a dependent piece of software doesn't lock you into and not allow you to upgrade another piece of software. I do a really good talk on cloud native development and how you migrate your applications to a cloud native development around this area. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's, a, that's a really good point, actually. And then there's the repurchase, which is pretty obvious what that one is. It's basically the move from perpetual licenses to a software as a service model and the consumption of as a so as a service software these days is is exponentially growing so going back to your car leasing example near the beginning of this podcast Sean that's that's a very clear example of you know you're just taking away the the whole ownership complexity yeah. all of your spreadsheets that the CFO and and or his her cohort has to deal with that kind of goes away, that level of management. You're really just, here's the cost of it. It's much, much easier. Although I have seen plenty of runaway costs with as a service model consumption as well, when, when not, when not organized correctly. Yeah. There, there are two aspects of that, that, that have that cost impact. The, the first one is, is if you, you lift and shift and you expect your slow IT systems to be the limiting factor for your businesses, what you rapidly find is, is that once the businesses realize they're there, they'll just start consuming services with no idea of what the real cost is. The, the second one is, is that the, the financial management, oftentimes an organization that is very CapEx focused versus OpEx focused, they struggle with that move to software as a service. You know, buying a piece of software, buying a light, even buying a license for a piece of software is considered a CapEx purchase. But once you move to a software as a service, there are very few organizations that can see that as CapEx. And so they, the mix of financial and how they do their financial reporting has to change. And there are ramifications and impact that they need to take into account for that. I've seen procurement departments actually shut down what would be a good move to a software as a service solution merely because they couldn't change the financial billing around it between capex and opex and the procurement department just said no we can't get this across the line and so it literally costs the organization more money to make to stay on this older piece of equipment just because they couldn't change the financials between capex and opex yeah yeah so I think that's probably a, we've got a we've got a podcast in in that one right there right financial help and modeling for 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 as a service consumption you know not just ne not necessarily just cloud but that one there is is a is a huge big topic on its own and it doesn't it just needs I think is one thing is needs to have open thinking right that's if you if you if your financial if your financial back office is open to thinking about the way that they pay for things and changing the way they pay for things that that is the most important aspect to being successful with with cloud consumption or or as a service oh, yeah. consumption because yeah. as soon as you do that as soon as you open the the gate to that then you can really you can make significant savings but i think the other thing as well is not to go too foolhardy with it and expect huge savings necessarily just by going to clouds. It's not, it's yep. not always the, the choice. So the other two were quite quick and easy that that was retire and re retain. So retire is simply to remove applications that are no longer needed. And going back to your example, where you had that CFO that came to you every quarter and said, look, uh, I need access to the system. Well, you know, the long-term ramifications of that's probably, you know, sh should you actually be using that particular system? Is it the that's right, right thing to keep? Or should we migrate off it? Can we, or can we just retire it? Is there something that you have in your, you know, you've probably got other systems now, you know, you've probably bought XYZ application that also does say it was payroll or, or you know, payroll yep. reports that go out quarterly, right? But you've probably got new payroll software over here. Are you taking, are you taking advantage of the payroll reports? that that system does oh no, no okay well maybe we could use that and then retire this one so there's all sorts of times when retire is an appropriate 
measure to take. And I think that's a critical decision to make with regards to the business processes and the applications that are in place. So very, very, uh, very valid decision to make, like just to say, you know, this is time that we retire this and we don't make a migration. We, we simply say, yep, this is finished now. And then and, the final by one. The way, well, yeah. so let's touch on this because there is actually a lot of times the, the IT teams go, just retiring it has no cost associated with it. Any project that just retires a piece of kit, there's no cost. And I think that's where the technology people miss with the business because the business does actually see a cost to that. Their current business processes are reliant on that piece of technology. And if they have to retool those business processes, there's a cost associated with that. Now, if the technology team went and said, we understand that you have to re you know, repurpose or, or retool your business processes. Here's what we think that cost is. Here's what the ongoing cost to support this piece of technology is. This one is so much higher than that one. The business would be much more open. This is, that's a, uh, that conversation point about taking into account the costs that aren't necessarily technology costs in that understanding the cost to retire it, I think is a hugely positive outcome driving discussion point for businesses. Absolutely. And then the final one was retain, which is just basically just to obviously that that was the the gate I think that we were talking about earlier on is just basically saying, yep, we agree that we are going to have this and we're going to label it, I guess, as technical debt. And we're going to retain this platform for now. And I think it's important that you set yourself a visit revisitation schedule. Oh, yeah. And if that's six months or a year, don't make it any longer than a year. I think no. that's, that's, that's critical. Well, and, and I know we kind of poo-pooed the idea of just sticking it on a risk register, but it does need to go on a risk register, but it needs to be an actively managed risk register, not a project risk register that nobody ever looks at because there is a risk to the business. And uh, especially from the technology side, if we communicate those risks to the business, then the business is more prepared to make the decisions that they need to make. And yeah. that's really important. They have to have that knowledge. I think the risk register, it, I've seen varying degrees of risk registers being utilized in organizations over the years. Um, a lot of them don't talk about costs, no. um, which is crazy, especially not total costs. They don't talk about the, the, the likelihood, they, they don't um, have like a, a matrix of risk so for example, they won't say, right, here's the risk and here's the probability, right? So they'll say, all right, okay, the, here's the risk. Yeah. But then it won't, it won't assess the criticality and the, the probability of that risk actually happening within the given time scale. And that's, that's quite, that context really needs to be put in, in the risk register because if it's not, then you, know, you could say, right, well, that's, that's probably going to happen at some point. But is that some point going to be within the next six months? Is it going to be in the next 12 months? Is it going to be yeah. in the next 12 years? You know, so that's really important to know. And it's also really important to know just how how probable that is. You know, if you don't know how probable it is, then you're on hiding to nothing. You know, those should be called out as the high criticality ones. That's right. From the start. Well, and, 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 and the risk register should be a main, it sh it's a shared responsibility between the business and the technology. It can't just... Look, risk, risk registers that exist only in the technology are, in my mind, almost worthless because if the business never gets a view of those risks and they never get input and they never get they never get the ability to understand what the risks are, then the risk register itself, I, I've 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 literally gone into organizations and had the the general manager of IT or this the CIO go, oh yeah, we have a risk register. And they even have meetings about it within the technology teams. And no business case that goes up doesn't reference the risk register, but the business has never seen or approved on or even understands the risk register in some kind of structure. And I think that actually leads into that next, the, this how we approach this, the ways we mitigate this, is the risk register is an artifact that along with architecture and roadmaps, can help to mitigate future technical debt. So we have existing technical debt. We need to document it. We need an asset registry. We need to know what's there. And we need to understand the risks and implications of that. And we need to understand 
both the total cost to continue owning it over time, the impact to cost in delaying the upgrade, and the cost to upgrade that. So all of that needs to be documented in some way. And by the way, for organizations that don't like building a lot of documentation or architecture or designs, the more technical debt you have, the more documentation you need. As you move towards more modern architectures, you can leverage the inherent capability of those, that, those modern architectures to maintain your documentation going forward, you know, semi-automated. So within the pipeline, within the service management platform, it's the older technology debt, no logging coming out of an older system, no integration with some kind of management system that monitors it. Because of that, you have to have more documentation. There needs to be more design work. There needs to be more architecture. Now, the architecture doesn't have to be a digital twin. It doesn't have to be you know, so detailed that it covers everything. But you, you do need enough information about it that you can make an informed decision to stay on the platform or not and to roadmap out how and when you're going to replace things. My recommendation, and I, I just did a podcast about a year ago with Simon Small, uh, SAS on the street, and he asked me how quickly should people be planning to replace it? And I remember back in the early 2000s, we used to say five years. So at five years, you had if you purchased it, you had written it down enough that you could buy the next thing. So if you were doing financial planning of total cost of ownership, you baked in the replacement cost at five years, you depreciated, 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 you hit the five-year mark, you bought the new one, started depreciating again. As leasing and as the service models went, those numbers have gotten shorter and shorter and shorter. And I think that we're somewhere, and, and uh, Alistair, I, I really want to get your impact about timeframes on this one, because my view of this is we're somewhere between one and three years on the one-year side rather than the three-year side, that software updates, software replacement, software upgrades, and we that's all, we need to do a whole podcast on software because there's a difference between update and upgrade and that gets hugely confusing but within that roadmap of scheduling when you're going to do things and planning them out so that there's not a financial surprise at some point so that you're providing for the new requirements and the new use cases that the business wants within a timely fashion as you go forward how do you see that time frame yeah i think you're i think you're right it's probably in sort of that one to three year period it's certainly not uh, a five-year view if you're doing a five-year view then then you're probably close to 10 years out of date in terms of thinking yeah yeah, yeah that's i think we learned something from that so it, it, look from a financial perspective let's go back to the car right if we buy a fleet of cars generally the the chief financial officer de depreciates those over a five-year schedule right and then at the end of five years, the it's considered worthless as far as the business is concerned, and they go through the whole cycle again. But I th and and trying to do that within technology, we did from the '90s going into the 2000s, we tried to do that. But what we found was, it if we start the replacement at five years, it's another three to five years before we replace it, which that meant that we we weren't hitting the replacement at the five years. So I think. For some large ERP systems, HR systems, doing the replacement at three years, you're going to be past the five-year mark before you complete it. So we've got some we've got some challenges within that decision-making arena. One of the big ones is is the, the, that that one user still on the system. And I, I, your example was I really liked it. The CFO that comes to you and says, "Hey, I you know I I use this system." once a quarter to do the financial reports and you ask him, well, don't you have other financial systems that also do quarterly financial reports? And oftentimes that one user has been on that system for 20 years. It's really the only system they know how to work and how to use. And so that's the limiting factor. And oftentimes a little bit of, of PLC and a little bit of money spent to train them on the new systems and they will get much happier and they will be able to vacate that one that system they're on and allow you to to retire it. But we've got some other challenges and some of those challenges are going to potentially mean that you have that as a company you've backed yourself into a multi-million dollar project to get past them. 
And unfortunately, mm. if you haven't been investing in technology for 15, 20 years, you may be at a point where you either have to transform the way your business works to get out of it, or you're going to have to spend multi-million dollars to get to get past some of those challenges. Yeah, yeah, that's quite common, unfortunately. I think especially in the in the days and ages of of proprietary hardware and software technology types. Fortunately, we're in a land now where there's a lot more choice. But I think just before I, I move on to say what I'm about to say, it's important, even in this world of lots of choice and cloud computing, there is still an emphasis by the vendors to do vendor lock-in. So yes. you, you have to think carefully when you're procuring your new platform about what the future looks like now, all right? You need to think about, right, well, this is great. It suits all my requirements now, but in two years or three years, will this still fulfill all my requirements? They, the likelihood is that they're going to upgrade their platform if it's a big platform like AWS or Azure, but there may be different business requirements that come in and you, you if you can think, if and it's pretty difficult, I get you know I have to put the whole uh, crystal ball gazing on that. But if you can think about your business requirements as they look like within two to three years, they may change, and that might cause you to go right. Well, the trajectory of the platform that I choose now, I need to be able to get off that platform as easily as I got on it, or easier. I, I should hope, I should say, right and. Even if you can't foresee what the future looks like, again, being able to see how you can get off that platform is the really important question, right? Because there's some technology, some products, I'm not going to name and shame, but it, you know, they're big name products. You look at them, they're very good. They're not, you know, they're, they're, they do what they do very, very well. But of course, like everything, you can't be everything to everybody. There are people realizing in these big products, they don't do the things that they want them to do, their specialist requirements. So how the heck do they get off them? They've invested all of this money, all of this time, all of this effort to get on these wonderful products just to find out actually in the end it doesn't do what they need and then they're trapped. And that's, that's really scary because not only is their data now not in their own premise or on their own platform, it's in somebody else's data center in some other country, which is, yeah, it's a real way. So yeah, that, there was that, something... there, there was that social media company in the US that after the last election and whether you like them or, or don't like the social media company, but Amazon decided they weren't going to allow them to run on their platform and turned them off. And the company folded. There was no company after that. And you, 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 as a company, these are things that you need to take into account. And they're, they're, and the, and sometimes if the record of truth is a software as a service platform for your business, the cost for you to get off that might be more than the cost for you to stay on it. And then you are locked into whichever d development path they're going on. You're on for the journey. You're, so if that, if that development path doesn't have the agility that you will require in the future as well, like if their iterations of the product don't, doesn't come out fast enough for the requirements that you might have, that, that's a really, really difficult place to be in. You don't want to be in that place, do you? And it's a cost that needs, it, it's, it's funny because trying to say monolithic and, and cloud at the same time is, is kind of interesting, but choosing a cloud and buying services from the cloud in such a way that you cannot get off that cloud you've essentially put yourself on somebody else's monolithic environment and to to make this very poignant amazon and azure both gcp as well turn on a thousand new services a year what they don't tell you is is they turn off several hundred services they just shut the services off a year and let me assure you, there are businesses that are using those services that suddenly that service isn't there anymore and the business has to figure out what they're doing. And oftentimes they can't get off the cloud vendor because it's too expensive for them to, to migrate off the cloud vendor. So yeah. it, it needs to be a conscious choice 
to decide to par partner with the particular as a service, whether it be cloud vendor or SaaS provider, it needs to be a conscious choice and someone needs to be guiding those choices. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I can, I can think of quite a few examples of where that, that, that thing actually happened in real life, not that, not that far away from, from home either. So yeah, there's quite a few interesting examples of where that happens. So going back to the sort of monolithic architectures, I think it's um, hard for people who bought into architectures, which were non, non-standard by today's, today's backgrounds but i think back in 25 30 years ago standards were different things you know we had an evolution going back to the mainframe days where we had different processor types you know everything these days in a data center is pretty much intel based and and that's yep. the way it is so it's big indian or little indian is it little indian or big indian i it, always forget it's li little indian for L the processor indian. type uh, right. process architecture yeah Right. So, so we've got these 64 bit processors made by Intel or their equivalents, and they all work in the same way. However, we have big companies like IBM, like Hewlett Packard uh, and Spark as well. So the sun architecture, so what, what is now Oracle. So you've got those platforms where you have the software that was all locked in. So you got like PeopleSoft, you got like the Oracle databases, I guess. The, what else did you have? You have the, lots of, lots of different Solaris based applications that don't spring to mind right now, but all of that, all that whole Sun ecosystem and the Oracle ecosystem that sat on the, the Sun platform and then the equivalents with the IBM. So the web spheres and so oh, forth, yeah. right? So those platforms, they were heavily, heavily touted in, the, from, from the, I guess the late eighties onwards, but mainly the nineties yep. and noughties, right. As the big platforms. And if you invested in these things as an enterprise, basically nobody got fired for buying IBM, put your money, put your money here and everything is going to go great. And that is pretty much what happened. You, you put your money there and by and large, it worked platform worked, right. Yep. And, and, and the thing is that will take you 20 years or 15 years, or in some cases, maybe even only five or 10, but more or less it'll, you know, I've seen lots of organizations here in New Zealand who are running, you know, 15 to 20 year old IBM or Solaris slash Oracle platforms. Yeah. The problem is that they're running on hardware, which is non Intel based. So yep. you can't just simply go right. With Intel-based software and Intel-based platforms, you can go lift and shift. Like I said, just a simple, straightforward migration, stick it in the cloud. Most of the time, you can do that, right? You can you can worry about the details later if you want. Yep. You yep. can't do that with this IBM stuff and the Solaris That's stuff. Right. If it's Spark or power-based architecture, you can't do that. And that is really monolithic and really expensive. And so you have to think differently about it all. And I think the big thing really, and I know what you're going to say here, Sean, you have to think differently about it all because you have yes. to think about business process first. That is yes. the very, very first thing you need to think about. I, I think, you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, maybe 20, 25 years ago, I think technology was leading those, those business. The business process was being led by the technology. We were coming out with new tech. Email is a perfect example. Before email, everybody mailed around letters for everything. Email comes out. It drives the business to transform their business to use email instead of using hard paper mail. I think that where we've come to now is the business has started to innovate in a way that the business can now see the future of where they're going. And they're now leading the technology. And unfortunately, if you're on a, an off-the-shelf product, that originally led your innovation within your business, you now may be locked in where you can't go where the business wants to go on the platform you're on. And this is where technical debt starts biting your, if you remember back to the very beginning of this podcast, when I talked about it, one of the costs that we don't talk about is the business wants to innovate in these new spaces. They want to go in this new direction. They have new requirements and new use cases. The platform can't do it. We can't upgrade the platform we basically have to re-architect or redesign or and, and it's a multi-million dollar project to get off that. And that 
that choice to be in that monolithic platform 20 years ago and to not invest in technology between now and between then and now has now put you into a corner where oftentimes you will decide, no, 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 we won't, we won't do these new innovative things for the business. And one of the costs, and the business needs to be aware of this, is, is that a startup company that doesn't have that 20 years of technical debt may come along and decide to do the innovative things that you couldn't do because of your technology, and they will put you out of business. And that has happened within the last five years. I know it's happened within the last 10 years to literally hundreds of companies. I think that if if you're going to have a takeaway statement about this whole podcast today, I think, Sean, that's probably it, right? That is the, the killer app of this particular podcast today. That That's a very strong statement, and it's very true. It's, it's absolutely on the money. Sorry, <laughs> if you pardon the pun. It, but, <laughs> right on the nose, right, Alistair? <laughs> right on the nose. So... So I yeah I think that's a great great takeaway to to really think of if you're if you're a CFO or a CTO CIO or even a CEO I think really having a think right now about what sort of technical debt your organisation could have and thinking about what is the cost of delay what are we being held back by what what are we being hamstrung by by the lack of well, the technology debt that we have, but the lack of innovation that we have as a result of the debt that we have in there. How can we safely get off that? That's the, yeah. that's the really important and, thing. And, and if you're in the technology teams, so general managers, middle management in IT, even uh, down to, you know, you're the service support people, highlighting those technical debts that you know are coming because you're the subject matter expert in it. Oftentimes the business doesn't see it coming and you have been getting updates from Microsoft for the last 18 months that, you know, Windows 95 was going end of life or something, or Windows NT was, or I just dated myself, XP, XP was going end of life. And, and so the business gets broadsided because they feel like they haven't communicated it or they haven't known about it. So communicating you know, Sean, those... Sean, XP came out in 2001 and you know, it's 2021 now. You know, yes, just, yes, just I, I do. 20, 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, so make sure you're communicating those technology debts that you have and giving it to the business in a way that help them understand, help them understand what the cost, the ongoing cost of support it is, and then help them to understand the limitations for the capabilities that they're getting because this technology debt exists. I, I, Alistair, I think yeah. we could, we could talk about tech debt for, I think, two or three hours. Yeah. But I, I think people are going to be tired of hearing very quickly so true uh, true i think that that, that's a good point though what you make there is if you are somebody who is is on the engineering side if you're in the technology side of the business if you want a good opportunity to be promoted in in your career quickly the having the ability to understand the language that the business is talking or the business wants to listen and receive that information in oh, is yeah. incredibly um, important, incredibly valuable to have. So if you're good at being able to translate that, that you know, here's the business case almost of why you need to replace this technical debt or, or, yep. or technology before it becomes the debt, right? Because you don't want it to get to that point where it's really, That's right. you know, melting over, bubbling over. You, you want it to become, you know, a, a nice smooth runway to take off Here's the old technology, and just as it's becoming critical, just before then, boom, we're we're into the new, and that that's that's kind of if you can if you can make an easy, easily understood business plan kind of case or business case that you can share with the business, that's incredibly powerful. So that's a, a definitely a skill that I would say that you should hone if you're if oh, you're a technologist. Absolutely, that'll take your career to the next next level. Yeah. Well, where where can we find you on online, Alistair? How can people get you, in touch with you? Yeah, you can you can find me all over the place. You you can just Google my name. You'll you'll find me. But I guess you can find me on LinkedIn. So um, I'm Alistair J Ross on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.com forward slash Alistair J Ross. And you can also get me at Servian on email. So it's Alistair.ross, A L I S T A I R. Dot um, Ross at Servian S E R V I A N dot com. What about yourself, Sean? Oh, yeah, I'm all over the social media. If you look, uh, Sean G. Muller, 
uh, S-E-A-N-G-M-U-L-L-E-R uh, on the Instagrams and the Twitters and the LinkedIn and the Facebooks and the my my 14-year-old just found a new one she said she wants me to sign up for. Um, or you can get me at sean.muller at servian.com and uh, we will get back to you, you know, right away. I, I believe you have been technology whispered at this point. We have to come up with a closing somehow. I, I don't yeah, know we, what the closing is. Yeah, it, it, I, I don't know. It's going to be sort of horse related, isn't it? Oh, it's going to have to be. I, I hate my my partner. I don't like horse. I like horses. They're nice animals. I don't like riding horses. I don't like being around them. They're very intelligent animals. And if they don't like you, they step on your feet. And they're very big animals. So stepping on your feet is a very unpleasant thing. So I don't like being around horses. But yeah, we, we'll come up with something. By the we're, third we're, podcast, we'll come up with some kind of closing that we can do. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, and nothing's coming to me right now. That's that. We'll that's think about bad. it. Yeah. We'll th- okay. No, no, we'll think about it. Thank you guys for listening to us, and wait to hear. We'll get more podcasts coming. Excellent. Thanks very much, Sean. Thank you very much for listening. I'll see you soon.